I just need one, really like one to three properties, not even just five to hit 10K a month. Whereas I would need 50 long-term rentals. Like just let that sink in. Mm. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. Michael, what's up, brother? How are you? What's up, Brian? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. Very excited to have you on, man. Coolest last name ever, which I'm sure you get. Not many people are just Spanish elephants right out the gate. So, dude, welcome. <laughs> I'm surprised right. you don't have that all in your branding, man. I'm surprised it wasn't part of your moniker. Uh, it should be. It should be. <laughs> Maybe that's the next move. Yeah, but I'm excited to have you on. You are crushing it in the short-term rental world. I've been following your story. You're going crazy on social media, sharing just pure value. You're a great account to follow for people that want to go check them out on Instagram. It'll be in the show description. You've got your own community that I think is exceptional. There's a lot of communities out there that are terrible, and yours is not one of them. And you're just doing really great stuff in business, man. So I'm really interested in diving deep into each one of these multiple facets. But first, I want to start with, I have this idea that I want you to stress test or push against. My idea is that I think with every ounce of my being that somebody can go from zero to financially independent within one to three years, wholeheartedly. If you're around the right people, taking the right actions, you have a strong enough vision, you can pull it off. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on, man. That's It's exactly what I live and preach every single day. And there's many different ways to achieve that. But for me, I'm a true believer that short-term rental, it really only takes one to three. And for those that are listening, short-term rentals, like most people say Airbnb, and that's what you think of. But short-term rental is the actual asset class. It only takes one to three good properties to replace your nine to five income for most people. Now, if you're an exception and you're an extreme high income earner, maybe it takes more. But that's the power of short-term rentals. And that's the power of anything that you set your mind to and just get you just have to get started. But yeah, I'm a case study of that. My goal was 10 years. My wife and I remember sitting down at the table thinking, we want to hate our jobs. We want to come financially free in 10 years. How do we do it? Got into real estate, looked at 100 different options, and then got into short-term rentals. And we had three properties within the first year and we were financially free. And we were like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> but it just goes to show that we thought about it for years and didn't take action. Finally, we took action and it happened in a tenth of the time. That we thought it did. So yeah, man, I'm I'm 100% on the same page as you. What do you think is the difference between the people that are having that 10 year vision and aren't making it come to fruition versus the people that are? I think the people that spend the majority of time thinking about the vision and crafting the vision end up burning so much unnecessary time, and the people that think about the vision just one day write down like 10% of it, but take action the next day and figure the rest out, the other 90% out as they go, are the people that are going to achieve it way faster. <laughs> you have to be action-oriented. You have to be able to get through adversity, learn from your mistakes. But if you're too afraid to take that first step and you're just a visionary... For example, you guys have probably all have those friends out there where you're out to dinner. And for me, it's I have a lot of friends that they know everything about real estate, but they don't have a single real estate investment. Like, what are you waiting for that? <laughs> yeah more than 90% of the people that I work with before they get started and they all have 
three properties, they're cash flowing 10 grand a month and you're sitting here just talking about it. So be in that 10% of, hey, here's the overall vision. Don't know how I'm going to get there, but here's the first step. What's the most necessary next step in my journey? Just focus on that. And once you accomplish that first step, think about the most necessary, uh, necessary next step and just keep walking up the ladder until you get there. Yeah. Journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, right? That's right. So you're talking about the, I call it like the action muscles. How fast do you go from idea to implementation? That's what we're talking about. Now, when it comes to vision, I, I do think that vision is probably the most important thing. But what you're talking about, I see your perspective on this because how you're viewing it is the person that is just living in a daydream and they're not actually taking any actions that will bring that dream to fruition. So I think there was a, a quote that was like, vision without action is a daydream. Action without vision is a nightmare. And I was just like, ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> So there's a lot of people listening to this right now that are making good money. We'll call it 80,000 plus in their W2, their nine to five jobs. And they are so stuck. They've got this vision for financial freedom of traveling the world, of building their own thing. And they can't quite figure out which asset class to pick. So they're stuck where you're alluding to in this kind of cloud of indecision. So what's some advice that you can give to them about picking their asset class and overcoming this analysis paralysis to really start building the cash flow to leave this nine to five job? Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind is a lot of people have this big vision of, hey, I want to travel in my 20s or 30s and like live life on my own terms, but their investments don't align with their vision. They invest mm -hmm. in a 401k or an IRA and they're playing society's game of, hey, I'm going to work until I'm 65 years old. If your goals are not to work until you're 65, then you probably need to stop investing at least solely in a 401k or an IRA and start allocating money to investments or to building a business that can help you achieve that goal of financial freedom or level of income or relatively passive income, I should say, sooner. So a lot of people have that overall vision or their goals, but their investments and their actions don't align to it. So you have to be in alignment with what you want and then take advice from people who are living the life that you want to live, not from people who are not living the life you want to live. I, people get so caught up in that, whether it's their parents, their friends, they think are mentors, people in the same company as them that are 20 years older, but still working 50 hours a week. You got to be very selective on who you put in your inner circle and who you take advice from. I love that. So you want a 1% life, but you're taking that same actions as the 99%. Exactly. I'm curious, do you view Airbnb more as a business or as a real estate investment? Both. It can be more active income, depending how involved you are day to day. Of course, you can outsource to a property management company. But the truth of, truth of the matter is 90 plus percent of property management companies are not going to do that property justice and not maximize revenue potential. Now, with in the past like 5 to 10 years, technology and software has basically democratized short-term rental investing and short-term rental management, in my opinion. 10, 15 years ago, you would have to maybe even have an office, staff cleaners, check in guests, be on the phone all day, email back and forth. Now with property management software, pri dynamic pricing solutions, software to integrate with your cleaners, like 90% of that day-to-day -day is taken care of. So it's not as passive as just, hey, I'm just going to go invest in this S&P 500 or a 401k, but the ROI potential is substantially higher. And if you're willing to put in 30 to 60 minutes of work per week per property once they're set up, just on the management front, for insane levels of income, then it is a very worthwhile strategy to explore. <clears throat> I like this. We'll go into the tech stack here in a second. 
But the reason I ask that is because uh, people have been talking about passive income for the last 10, 15 years. And because you're in the game, it's like you understand passive income. Does it? It's not 100% passive. It's a spectrum of passivity, right? Yeah. So it depends how good the tech is, how good the systems are, how good is your property manager, et cetera. So Airbnb, I think, is one of the most lucrative ways to do this, especially short-term rentals, mid-term rentals, the whole gambit. And you're somebody that's operating in this space at, if not the top, like right there in the top 1%. You may be the guy here. And it's been really interesting to watch. In the news, there's been two articles that have caught my attention that everyone's talking about, but no one's asking about on podcasts. One is New York City just banned short-term rentals. The other one's Dallas. I live in Austin. Dallas is banning short-term rentals. What's some advice you can give to somebody about selecting a market if they do decide that short-term rentals are their asset class? What's some advice you can give to mitigate some of this risk for somebody that's just now getting started or for people that are already in that scenario, in that market, and are worried right now? I would say to answer your first question, focus on markets that vacation rentals existed long before Airbnb. New York City didn't really have home shares or Airbnbs, short-term rentals like they do today before Airbnb was created or Verbo was created. But if you go to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, you go to the Panhandle of Florida, like the Destins, the Panama City beaches, or a lake or a beach, like traditional vacation areas where the local economy is supported and carried from tourism, Mm. that's where markets are going to always be more investor-friendly because they know they need a lot of those properties to help support the local tourism and economy. So that's number one. Number two, because I have properties that are in urban areas like Nashville and Fort Lauderdale. A lot of the times you can see the writing on the wall. Um, mm-hmm. By that, has there is there already a process for investors to get a permit to legally rent? If there's not, and it's the Wild West, which is becoming less common now with all the cities implementing, implementing new rules. If you're in the Wild West, you put yourself out there. One, you could grab some market share. Great. But two, if they implement new rules and basically say anyone in these zones can no longer short-term rent, or if it's not your primary residence, you can't short-term rent, you're shit out of luck. So mm-hmm. I would go to, to a place, for example, like Nashville. They had a permit process in place. They made their zoning actually more strict. But what they're doing is grandfathering in existing permit holders. Instead of just screwing everyone, they're saying, hey, if you were to sell that property, the new owner cannot short-term rent it. But for as long as you own it, since you got the per- proper permit at the laws of the given time, we're going to allow you to continue to do it for forever. So that tells me Nashville is a more investor-friendly city. If you look at like a San Francisco, New York, some of these more progressive area like cities, they tend to make more brash decisions like on the spot, and it leaves investors hanging. So. I would do those two things. If you're going to invest in an urban area, just see if you can figure out what the rules have been in the past, what rule changes, see if you can call the city or talk with local investors or agents, figure out what the writing on the wall is. Otherwise, maybe focus on traditional vacation markets, which have been tried and true forever. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So just follow your common sense. Follow your logic (laughs) here. Some of it you're not going to be able to know. Dallas surprised me a bit. I I think most of it was around zoning and city limits. New York, Mm -hmm. I could see that coming a mile away. New York's pretty... It's a very dense city. Eight or nine million people just in in New York City itself and heavily run and operated by hotels. They already have rent crisis there, which isn't going to stop anyway with or without Airbnbs there. But I saw that writing on the wall a while back. Dallas surprised me a little bit more. Austin, on on the other hand, just... They're fighting it. Yeah. I don't know if it was the state or the federal federally they overturned some of the recent bans that the city of austin actually implemented 
Uh, yeah. I know that I don't know if it was a class action lawsuit from some local investors who had a bunch of properties there, uh, but they actually overturned some of the stringent, uh, strict laws. Um, so that's interesting. You're actually seeing some cities that North Carolina did the same thing in a couple of cities like Wilmington, North Carolina. They came in and said, no, actually, you cannot tell property owners what they can and can't do with their property based on X, Y, and Z law. So it's a weird balance. I think there's going to be more regulation going forward. But I will turn this around, Brian, because sometimes regulation is a good thing as an investor, believe it or not. And I'll tell you the reason behind that. If you're in an area with no regulation, and it's not like an island where there's only so much real estate for people to buy and rent out... If there's no regulation, the supply is somewhat uncapped, right? Anybody can come in and do short-term rental. However, if you're in a place that only allows it in certain zones and there's an application process, it puts a soft cap or a ceiling on supply to some extent, or at least limits supply growth. Because if you're in an area where supply is going bananas, but demand isn't keeping up with it, the revenue per available listing is going to go down. So it may actually have diminishing returns for you as an investor. Got it. So let's go first into more of a like a beginner piece of advice, and then we'll tri- pivot quickly into more advanced level strategy. So right now, you got your first properties in 2019, and now everyone is freaking out about any single family purchase because of the interest rates, right? So everyone's going crazy about these interest rates. So what's some advice you can give to somebody that is looking to buy their first short-term rental right now in today's market in 2023? So there's an old saying, I think realtors used to say this to help people <laughs> encourage them to buy homes where it's uh, marry the house, date the rate, yep. date, date the rate, marry the house. So that's pretty true for investors too, because the way I look at it is this, interest rate is just one input in the investment analysis. You're going to have to factor that in. And if interest rates are higher like they are today than they were two years ago, that's just one thing. It's probably going to give you a little bit of a less of cash and cash return just because your debt service is higher. However, Let's say you were to buy that house today with a 7% interest rate and a year from now, interest rates are at 15%. You're going to be damn happy you bought something at 7% and be like, man, I wish I got more at that time. Yep. And if interest rates go down, you can refinance and lower your debt service and now your cash to cash goes up. So that's why they say marry the house, state the rate. You can lock in a house today at the current purchase price, which I will say is way more of a friendly buying environment than it was two years ago. I remember trying really? to buy home. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Two years ago, when interest rates were 3%, you're competing with not just investors, but a lot of residential buyers competing with even like big firms that are scooping up single-family houses nowadays. And there might be 50 offers within 24 hours, best and final due within 24 hours. And people are, no joke, all cash going above and beyond by like $100,000, $200,000, waiving inspections, waiving appraisal gaps. They're just buying whatever they can because they want to lock, lock in the rate or, or whatever, just look at a piece of real estate. Now we're getting a lot of my students, even including myself on a property we bought earlier this year, getting under asking price, getting the sellers to comp like 20 grand worth of closing costs in some scenarios or the maximum they're allowed to credit, buying your rate down for you and doing any other seller concession, right? Because they are trying to get rid of their home. So it, it's just different. You're, one analogy that my, the VP of my company actually uses is like a seesaw. You're rarely ever, if ever, going to get the perfect balance where the seesaw, they're both low on each side, low interest rates and low purchase price. So typically when interest rates go down, real estate prices go up. When real estate, when interest rates go up, it suppresses prices, which is what the Fed's trying to do right now. So I'll leave it at that. It's never going to be a perfect buying environment, but just pick your poison, I'll say. Yeah, that makes sense. What other factors do you take into account when you're underwriting in a short-term rental? Do you stick away from HOAs, correct? 
Not entirely. Uh, really? But I will say for HOAs, if it's a purely residential community and they have an HOA, I would check. I always check like what percentage of the rentals are primary residences versus second or investment properties, second homes or investment properties. Because you, if they are ever to go to a vote and like change change it drastically because there's one short-term rental that's causing a lot of headache, then you're going to be in some muddy water. So, But I have several properties that actually have HOAs, but they're pretty investor-friendly. Yeah. So when you're looking up these properties, are you using AirDNA? Like what's in your tech stack whenever you're looking for a property? So AirDNA is great. There's several other sites that collect information and data from Airbnb and Verbo and basically compile it for you. And historical data, AirDNA is the king of the hill right now. And, and they have great information. They actually just changed their pricing way more affordable now than it used to be. That's what, I like to do on, yeah, what I like to do on AirDNA is just go... You can look at the top properties by reviews, by revenue, by occupancy. And then I would always just look on the map and where they're located. That should tell you right then and there what type of property you need, what type of amenities are needed in the property. You can draw on the map on Zillow. This is the area where all the top properties are located. I don't need to do all this market research on why are people visiting here? Although you want to do that, but I already know where the top performers are. It's my friend, John Bianchi. I think is how you say his name. He does all this analysis and data. He's the Airbnb data guy. Give him a quick shout out here. He's great to follow. He calls it the Burger King method because Burger King, where do they operate? They open up a place right across the street from McDonald's after McDonald's spends tens of millions of dollars doing all the market research. <laughs> so Fair. don't fix what's not broken. So if there's any one thing you pick up from this podcast is go to your DNA, look at the top properties. Where are they located? What amenities do they have? What's, how many bedrooms do they have? Are they catering to families, bachelorette groups, whatever it may be in that market and try and replicate it and then put your own special sauce and, and design on it to, to attract new guests. So that's the biggest thing. And of course, as far as your analysis is concerned, you want to look at occupancy rates, average daily rates historically, and then look at your comps. Find like the top three comps that, uh, to your property you think you're going to compete directly with. Look at their calendar. How much are they booked? What are the reviews? What is their daily rate priced out on weekends, weekdays throughout the year? Put that into your analysis. If you find a winning property, trust the numbers, go for it. And yeah, on the back end, property management is really critical, especially from a pricing perspective. So if you want to automate a lot of the day-to-day, you need a property management software. There's a ton of them out there. Some of the ones my students use are Hospitable, Guesty, Guesty for Host, those types. And then Price Labs or Wheelhouse for Dynamic Pricing, which is really cool because now you're just not guessing in the dark like old PMs used to do. Hey, I rent this property for $300 a night through the whole year. It's the biggest mistake ever because they're walking over like 20 extra thousand dollars that they're not getting. Mm-hmm. That they're either not getting revenue because they're not getting booked because they're overpriced on a Monday or Tuesday night, or they're not priced high enough for peak demand days. So what Price Labs and Wheelhouse do is they will look at booking trends for every, any given day for you and all the comps in the area. And then the, based on your customizations, they'll up raise or lower your prices based on demand, which is super cool. So very intricate and it, 90% of that happens in the background. So those are the biggest things on the management. Pricing is what's going to set you apart because you want to be priced right. You don't want to be leaving dollars on the table. But a lot of people also will, oh, I don't go below $300 a night because my property should never be rented below that. Somebody else is and they're getting rented for those low demand days. And it's killing you on search ranking results. Because if you get booked at a lower rate, you're getting a review, you're getting some revenue, which you wouldn't have gotten before. And the analytics are important. On It's like a Google search. You get search impressions on Airbnb. You get clicked, you get booked. So your conversion rate's higher and you're priced right. And now you have more reviews. So it's this perpetual life cycle. It perpet- increases the ranking you have. And then you have more bookings. And then all of a sudden, people see perceived value with high reviews, low availability. 
and it just keep, continues to compile. Got it. If you had to pick three metrics that you that an Airbnb or short-term rental uh, host were focused on, just three, what would those three things be to make the to maximize the profit, maximize reviews, etc.? Met daily rate is important, and then occupancy rate. You have to find the right balance, right? Because just because you're 100 occupied, you could be rented out for a ten dollars a day. It's not necessarily. You need to find the right balance between occupant occupancy and daily rate to maximize your revenue. So, like those are the two biggest ones. Third metric, reviews, just as a static metric, are really important. The higher quantity of quality reviews you get, that's super critical. Got it. That makes sense. So you mentioned before previously about taking an Airbnb from good to great. And so you can buy a good property, but you can change the profitability about $50,000 plus by making it great. So what does a good Airbnb look like versus a great Airbnb? And then how do you make up the Delta? So it all goes back to that market research on do all the top properties have a hot tub and you don't, you might be leaving 10, 10 or 20 extra grand on the table just for one amenity because a lot of guests might be searching for it. It might help you in slow season because people want a hot tub to jump into if it's snowing outside or cold, right? Versus one that doesn't have one. So those types of things, what basically write two columns must have amenities. So this is must have in a market. So like South Florida, you're going to want a pool. You're going to want it heated. You want probably want like a fire feature, an outdoor grilling area, maybe some nice lights out back, whatever those top properties have. And then you're nice to have. So this is, okay, if I have all of the... If I check all the boxes that all the other ones have, that's great. But how do I get someone to pick me at the same price as them or a premium rate compared to them? What can I offer on top of that? This is where you can add some more off-the-wall amenities, like a mo- converting a room to a movie theater, adding a home gym, adding building a putt course in the backyard or front yard, or, or doing something crazy. So the more amenities, the more features you can add, the better. I view Airbnb like social media. Like, how, how what's going to stop and get Brian to look at my listing compared to the thousands of others that he could just continue to scroll? TikTok. If you don't catch your capture your attention in two seconds and you don't click on me, that's a missed opportunity. I need you to click so you go to my splash page and see the five photos. I want you to be so blown away with the five photos that, man, I got to want to learn more about this place. And then I want you so bought in that you can visualize yourself having a great time in the backyard, in the game room, in the living room, the kitchen. That you're like, man, I don't even care what it's priced at. I don't want to rent this place. Yep. <laughs> Any advice on the photos? Get professional photography 100%. Don't take photos of your phone. And it's not just photography, but it's also editing. Yep. Um, and stage your property. The biggest mistake you can make is have a beautiful property, but have really bland photos. And they're just stale. It's like a real estate uh, listing for a home. You want to stage it like it's like a resort that like you could picture. I feel like I could jump in the photo and I'm already there having a good time. So set the tables, put charcuterie boards out, put wine out, champagne, like in all these different areas, roll up towels. If you have a pool, put them on like the day beds, all those things. And then lighting is really critical. If you have a great outdoor space, don't just take daytime photos, take twilight photos where there's a sunset and you can edit it to make it look extra nice. If there's a fire pit, light it. <laughs> all those little things that um, are really critical. What's going to draw you in to click and learn more? Yeah. Okay, cool. I love that. Is there anything that you do from the management side? And also what I'm hearing in Airbnb coincides with this quote that I heard, which was the market for good wanes, like waxes and wanes with the economy. So good, sometimes if the economy is good, people want good. But if the economy is not so good, people don't get good. But the market for great always exists, always remains. So 
what it almost sounds like what you're saying is whenever you're buying one of these properties, it almost makes more sense to really go over above and beyond to make sure that this is as sensational of a property as it possibly can be. And it would be the highest ROI on your return. Would you echo that? 100%. Yeah. Like any business, I mean, you have a lot of entrepreneurs that you work with in your group, inner circle. I think competing on price is a race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. Unless you're in it for the long haul and you all you want is scale like an Amazon mentality or Walmart. But for most people, if you compete on price, you're going to have diminishing returns. And then as it gets more competitive, you're not going to be profitable for very long. But if you compete on value, like the Apple mentality, they just know they're going to be better. They sell a commodity product, a phone, but everyone wants an iPhone. They could, they have a value prop. They never, they rarely ever, if at all, ever do like discounts. They have a value prop. It's premium and they get premium guests or customers. So that's what you want as a short term rental operator. So y'all are, y'all have a portfolio of nine, correct? We own seven ourselves. And then we have a couple personal properties, but we own seven. And then uh, I have a management company where we manage about 300 currently. Yeah. Tag on, man. So y'all, I've seen a couple of like podcast titles. So it says like all these podcast titles are like $80,000 a month. So is that from your personal ones plus mm-hmm. and then the management company just, and everything else personal. is on the side? Yeah. Yeah. The personal. That's why I say, qual- like you said, quality over quantity all day long. And the only reason I even got interested in short-term rentals is because I was doing the math on like, Hey, how much do I need to make 10 grand a month in? I'll just call it like relatively passive income, residual income. Sure. Okay. If I need 200 bucks a door, I get it. Long-term rentals. I need 50 properties. That I quickly <laughs> yeah. get overwhelmed. Dude, 50 properties. Like that is so many. I got to do all this creative <laughs> financing. I got to go find money. And then I'm like, okay, if this is true about short-term rentals, there are people making thousands of dollars per property per month in net profit. Then, Okay. If I need $10,000 a month, I just need five properties at 2K a month. And at first it seemed overwhelming. But then once I have my, my first property ever currently cash flow is like five to 6K a month net. So I'm like, oh, I just need one, really like one to three properties, not even just five to hit 10K a month. Whereas I would need 50 long term rentals. Like just let that sink in. Mm. If I'm going to put forth the work to go evaluate hunt deals, there's just more margin in short term rentals and more upside that could be had. So yeah, our seven, I think our highest month ever was this July. We did 125K gross and net like 60 something thousand. And God July dang, 50% margins. Yeah. I would say uh, on average for my students and myself historically between 40 and 60% margins, net cash flow to, to total revenue. Hot damn. Let's go, man. This is freaking awesome. Yeah. That's very interesting because uh, for people listening, how many of you fall into this camp? I hope you're sitting down for all you guys listening. How many of you have been sitting on maybe sixty dollars to $80,000 of cash and you're trying to buy that condo, you're trying to buy that long-term rental and you keep getting priced out of the market, interest rates are going crazy, you've been sitting there for a year, you still haven't bought that property, you're making over $100,000. Even if you got the property, you'd cash flow 200 bucks a month. And you've been doing this for two years. <laughs> Listen to Michael. <laughs> 200 bucks is... Look, don't get me wrong. Investing in any type of real estate is going to be immensely beneficial for you long-term. But 200 bucks a month, isn't. it wasn't going to change my life. It's probably not going to change yours if you're listening. Now, if you get 50 of those properties, yeah, that's nice. 10K a month. Amazing. But man, short-term... And also with the short-term rental loophole. So if you're, if you have, if you're a W-2 person, you, you're paying probably the most in taxes out of anybody. right? Mm-hmm. You hear real estate investors pay less or don't pay anything in taxes. And I'll tell you, 
guys, something I learned, I wish I learned it the first property I bought, short-term rental loophole, which means that if you're actively involved in the business as a short-term rental, you can take advantage of cost segregation and bonus depreciation. Now they're phasing out bonus depreciation, but you can still do cost seg studies in the future. But in the next several years, you can still do bonus depreciate a percentage of that amount. And what that basically does is it looks at the entire property and it says, okay, plumbing, electrical, furniture, other fixtures in the house don't all have the same 29 or 37 year depreciate year pre depreciation schedule. So they lump some of that into a five year, a seven year, and an engineer looks at all that. And then what you can do is work with the CPA and bonus depreciate that up into year one, a portion of that amount. And that can be a lot of money. And what's cool about it is if you're the operator of the short-term rental, this is the loophole, is that will not just count against your passive income, but it will count against your earned active. So if you guys are making $100,000 a year, then you go buy a short-term rental or two short-term rentals this year, and your bonus depreciation amount is equal to that amount of earned income. Like You'll pay nothing in taxes. It's insane. So by the time you quit, like that's why people do that is because then they can think about that. If you paid 30 grand in taxes last year, this year, and you're able to offset all of that, $30,000 more to invest. So like the power is beyond just the cash flow. That depreciation and tax benefit is immense. Correct. Yeah. So I have a buddy that's got his own. So he runs cost segregation business. And in his cost segregation business, he's making so much cash that he has to buy a couple of Airbnbs per year. And how he views it is, I just want to go buy Airbnbs and short-term rentals where I want to go vacation anyways. He goes, because then I can write them off as depreciation, as do the cost seg study on them and be able to take away his active income. So he'll buy two or three a year just for that. So he's like, where do I, where do me and my family want to go vacation? Oh yeah, we want to go in the Smoky Mountains. I'm going to go buy one over there. Go buy one in Florida and then save money on your taxes while you're doing it. Oh my God. It's such a win scenario. Man, walk me through the emotional side of this. You and your wife are working and now you're in a $2 million dream home. You've got newborn, correct? In late 2022? Yeah, we have. She's about to turn one in here in two weeks, which is crazy. But yeah, it's been a- yeah, man. So congrats on that. And now you guys have built this financial freedom for yourself. And now you're helping thousands of other people do it as well, which is near and dear to my heart. So walk me through, man. Walk me through the day that you quit your job. How did that feel? What was that like? I will tell anybody out there, there is nothing more freeing and liberating than quitting your job, not for the sake of taking a better job, but for the sake of not needing it anymore. Like that feeling just crushes anything else I've ever felt in life. So we had this plan to do it in 10 years, right? We hit financial freedom in 12. And then by I think the 16th month after our first ever investments, this is by this time, it's April 2021. We had just finished our setting up our fourth property. So we were like, we're good. Quit my job. My boss was like, I was like, you sure you want to leave? Like you're doing great here. Like it's a great opportunity. I'm like, dude, I'm literally, I bought a camper van. Like I'm literally leaving my home and I'm just going to travel without an end date. That's what financial freedom is. And I was just like, this is nuts. Like we led a, a minimalist life for a year, lived in a camper van, rented out our primary home, had our Airbnb. Whole year. And, yeah. We did seven months like off-grid camping and we were managing our properties from our phones a couple hours a week. <laughs> Hike, hikes like 400 miles. We wanted to do that before we had kids. I'm glad we did because traveling with kids is still doable, but it's much more challenging. You got like nap schedules, then eventually school and stuff like that. So... That was the day we quit our job was just like for both of us was just like empowering. We finally, it's like taking, granted, every day is not a vacation, but like you're taking PTO from your job, but there's no, I'm coming back. 
Yeah. Um, so it's just an incredible feeling. Were there any moments afterwards? So when I left my job in March 2022, even though all the finances were done, like I'm good. And I went and did sound travel for eight months, but uh, not in a camper van, not minimalistic. I went all out. I went to Greece. <laughs> I, went, I went all over Europe and around the world. And I'm about to fly to Iceland again here in a week. But I was having some emotional turmoil after I left because there was still that seed of doubt in the back of my head. Because like you said, before you have community, before you have people around you, you don't have those 1% people around you. You have the 99%. And I'm assuming that you were in a really lucrative job. So was the, were there any afterwards? So you have your moment where you leave. And then afterwards, was, was there any doubt? Was there anything that you had to overcome that you could give advice to people that are maybe they've made the leap and they're like, oh my God, what am I doing? What am I doing? Like a little bit of buyer's remorse? Not so much. And I think we're fortunate to think this through before. So what happens to a lot of people when you increase the level of income, this is not even just like financial freedom leaving your job, is they have lifestyle creep. Yep. So they upgrade their lifestyle to reflect how much money they're making now. Part of the reason we wanted to like minimize before like we started taking on more personal expenses is if our level of income is at or above what it was from our jobs, and now we just got rid of all of our expenses. Now we just have, like for us, it was a camper van and travel costs and food, like nothing. Yeah. A couple grand a month max. That was that gave us a lot of comfort and we had money sitting in the banks. I think where people make the mistake is, hey, I'm going to go buy like a supercar. I'm going to go buy a, a sick apartment here, a mansion there. And they lose sight of their, their personal finances. And then when they take away the, this one active source and they only have this source, which can be like a roller coaster, right? Some months are great. Some months are slow. Some are average. You have to give yourself a little cushion or else you will experience... You can't experience stress stuff like that. One other thing I will say, and I don't know if you experienced this, if you set, it's hard to create a schedule for yourself unless you're super I don't know, adamant about it because for me <laughs> yep. today, even now I, sleep, <laughs> like, I try and work out in the mornings. I have a baby so it's a little different, but yeah. I might set my alarm for 7, I snooze it till 8, or I might not even set an alarm. And then I don't I usually don't work on anything till 10 or 11 in the morning, so yeah, it's weird. Like you can easily become lazy or you have to figure out ways to dedicate your time to something because the whole idea of you're just going to sit around and do nothing is going to be glorious, sit on the beach mentality. I used to think like that. It's that's not really true. You're going to get bored. So yes. just make sure like you invest your time into something that brings you joy. Even if you just want to like, go golf, travel, do whatever, do it. But I think a lot of people get caught up either either lifestyle creep or they're like, I don't know what the hell to do with my time. Don't let it get the better of you. So, dude, now we're to the part of the conversation I love. That's why I enjoy doing it because it's, yeah, you have perspective, right? So, it's after three weeks on the beach, you're hungover, you're sunburnt, you're texting your friends that are all working, and you're just like, okay, I've got nothing to do. What are my goals now? What am I working towards? I'm not really feeling useful. So, now what? What was that like for you? So, you guys are going around in this van, living the wanderlust lifestyle, digital nomads, basically, running a couple hours a week. At what point after this exodus did you find a semblance of purpose, of passion, get this idea of what is next for what is the next big, exciting thing that I'm working on now that I have my time and my life back? Besides the um, kid. <laughs> yeah, besides the kid, I was going to say starting the family was a big part of that. And I got into coaching and because I had a lot of, I started coaching before I actually quit my job. I was doing like mm -hmm. free coaching and hourly coaching calls just to help other people get started short term rentals. And then it turned into like building more of a community. And I became more passionate about that because 
if I can help other people achieve the same feeling and freedom that I have, and I can make a business out of it, it's the best of both worlds. Like I have good intentions behind it, which is why I like doing it. It's not just money driven, but then the money's good. And I can also have employees and help support them. And become an entrepreneur was more challenging than I thought, but very rewarding. So it's just like you can cho- choose something, be a part of something. You got to chase something. It's, it's really less about chasing a stagnant goal and chasing like, how do you want your life to be? What do you want your lifestyle to be like? Because you have to embody that each and every day. It's not like once I like, hey, I just want to lose 10 pounds. Once you lose 10 pounds, what happens to most people? They gain 10 pounds back mm-hmm. because they hit their goal. So it's, hey, I want to... Sure, I want to lose 10 pounds, but I'm going to lose 10 pounds as a byproduct of living a healthier lifestyle. And I could live a healthier lifestyle and I'm never going to get to the end goal because it's like a perpetual state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that is the biggest mindset I had to adopt. And I'd recommend to anybody who's he's there or not even there yet. Think about the end in mind. It's not the end, but it's the state of being that you want to be in. What do you want that to look like? And then you could build everything around it. So what's the next vision for you? Because in the next like three to five years, like what's your mission, vision and purpose right now? Because nobody really talks about this on these podcasts. But once you cross that threshold of I've got more than I need, then it becomes harder to keep going. So what keeps you going? What's next for Michael Elefante? I would say three to five years, or maybe not even that, maybe three to 10 years. I would love to help me and my business partners build a couple of different businesses that we own. So a design company and a management company, and who knows, maybe even the coaching business to a mm-hmm. point of, hey, we built this amazing thing and now we want to exit. And that'd be a big payday, which would be great. And which leads me into more of like longer term, it could be more charitable type things, maybe doing something on our own or finding something we're passionate about and just giving back, whether it's... I think it's important to be involved in local community, but also maybe something bigger. That'd be great. And I love the the continued education on helping, especially younger kids, understand that it's they don't have to follow this like static step-by-step ladder that society projects upon them. You don't have to follow all these steps. This isn't like you can go create whatever life you want to create. So I think it's important to help younger people understand money and finances and entrepreneurship and like what their dream could really be. So I don't know how, what that looks like for me in the future, but I'd love to be involved in some capacity. And then it's just focused on family and like just living and doing things that we love to do each and every day. I love that, man. I love that. It's really going from me to we, right? Okay, cool. I'm good. How do I help other people at scale? So yeah, man, near and dear to my heart. Let's be best friends. Go do karate in the garage. So tell people about BNB Academy. Yeah, BNB Investor Academy. I can go more in depth too, but in a nutshell, we help people find, invest in, set up, and manage short-term rental properties and be able to be like the top 1% of competitors in the space. So our sole goal for that program is to give you every resource in the book. It's very hands-on. You have a client success manager, you get one-on-one support, you get 30 plus coaching calls a month from seven, I think eight different coaches. And it could be like an attorney, a CPA, investment coaches, design coaches, property management, all the things. That are all like live over Zoom. So one-on-one group support both. And we just try and help you guys find that first property and then scale it as big as you want to scale it. Awesome. So where else can people find you? And then uh, also share about your management company. Yeah, for sure. Any social media, if you look up Michael Elefante or M Elefante 6, you should be able to find me. On Instagram, there's like a hundred accounts. So just the blue check mark, obviously the 
now with the meta verified, that is me, Mike, my ID verified. But yeah, you, anything I'm doing can be found on social media. Then the management company and design company, home team vacation rentals. If you guys are in short-term rentals, but don't want to self-manage, which I always encourage people to do, just give us a call or set up a meeting because we implement all the same strategies that have helped me and my students be successful, but we do it on a broader scale. And we have more resources too, but a lot of legacy PMs just they're killing you guys if you have properties with them, I'm telling you. And then the design company, we talked about how important design was earlier. We have full turnkey design services, remote or in person. And we design properties for short-term rentals, vacation rentals across the US. Summerlet Designs is that business. That's awesome. And guys, these will all be in the show description. So Michael, thank you so much for coming on, man. Everyone that's listening, go give Michael a follow. Go check out all the different businesses. Join the rocket ship. Hop on the Empire before he blasts off into orbit. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Yeah, Brian. Thanks for having me. With that, guys, it's been Michael and Brian with the Action Academy Podcast, signing off. Hey, real quick. If you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it. So I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want. And I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.